with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. If you'd like a shorter title for a sermon this morning, you could just put crucified the last three hours. Last week was the first three hours. Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. on a Friday morning at a place called Golgotha, just outside Jerusalem. He'd been mistreated and even beaten up during what was a very, very long night and during a three-part religious trial marked by illegal proceedings and false witnesses in which the Jewish Sanhedrin condemned him to death for blasphemy, but couldn't carry out the execution themselves because of Roman law. The Jewish leaders had to somehow convince the Roman governor Pontius Pilate that Jesus had committed a capital offense against Rome that warranted Roman crucifixion. So the three-part civil trial began as Jesus was taken before Pilate, then Herod, then back to Pilate. The Jewish leader's accusation against Jesus was this, as we read in Luke 23, verse 2, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Let that one sink in for a second. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate took Jesus into his headquarters for a private conversation, asking him if he was a king. Part of Jesus' reply that's recorded in John was this, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Well, that was all it took for Pilate to know that Jesus was innocent and not a threat to Rome. Pilate went back outside and told the Jews that he found no guilt in him. But they would have none of it. They would only be satisfied by Jesus being crucified. Pilate knew that this crowd was about to turn this proceeding into a rabid, angry riot which was a serious threat, you see, to his own political position as governor. And that's when Pilate came up with using the traditional Passover goodwill offering of releasing one prisoner of the Jews' own choice, hoping they would, of course, say, release Jesus. But they did not. The Jewish leaders had incited the crowd to demand Jesus' crucifixion. And they cried out for the criminal Barabbas of all people to be released instead. Pilate thought that he had only one more option 
to be able to release this Jesus whom he knew was innocent. He took Jesus back inside and had him cruelly scourged, whipped and beaten to a pulp. Unrecognizable, almost. And then Pilate brought him back outside hoping that the crowd would feel pity on Jesus and finally agree to his release. But they did not. The chief priests and officers cried out even more, crucify him, crucify him, whipping up the crowd to join them. Part of their shouting to Pilate included this, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. From John. Well, that did it. If you were able, would you please stand as I read Mark 15 verses 33 through 39. Mark 15, beginning at verse 33. Be reading from the English Standard Version. And when the sixth hour, noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, three o'clock. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jesus had been crucified at 9 a.m., and it's now noon. He's been on the cross for three hours already, and he's spoken three times. First to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's in Luke 23. Secondly, to one of the robbers next to him, also in Luke, truly I say to you today, You will be with me in paradise. And third, when Jesus saw his mother and John in the crowd, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, 
Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple John took her into his own home, recorded by John in John 19. Now at noon, the time of the day when it would be the brightest, God turned the day into darkness. This was not an eclipse, and there is simply no description or explanation of any other possible natural causes. God turned the land utterly dark, and it lasted three excruciating hours. The verb tenses indicate that it happened suddenly. In every one of the Gospels, speak of it in terms of a supernatural wonder. Realistically, this was nothing less than eerie. No words from Christ are recorded in any of the gospel gospels during these three hours. So what was this darkness for? Why darkness? Consider that Jesus had already been on the cross for three hours from nine to noon. And during that time, those passing by had derided Christ. The chief priests had mocked him. And the robbers had joined in. And then one of those robbers had actually repented. Jesus had arranged for the future welfare of his mother by giving John the responsibility of taking care of her as if she was his own mother. And then very, very suddenly, three hours of utter darkness and silence and judgment from noon till three. This extended darkness in the middle of the day was a powerful and undeniable sign of judgment, relating both to the Jewish people and to Jesus' death, most importantly. A passage in the Old Testament book of Amos, chapter 8, verses 9 and 10 When we read that, it sounds strangely familiar. It's a prophecy from Amos of God's judgment on Israel because the people did not heed the Lord's previous warnings. This judgment was carried out when Israel and Judah were defeated and carried off into captivity by Babylon and Assyria. But the apocalyptic language of this prophecy points to the future as well, to our New Testament record here of the crucifixion. We read there in Amos this, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, And darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. 
I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And the end of it like a bitter day. Did you hear that? At noon, I will make it like mourning for an only son. So this darkness was a sign of judgment on Israel and its people. But primarily, this darkness vividly communicates the judgment of God upon Jesus. So what was happening and why? Our sin was being poured out on Christ until he became sin. This was predicted in several passages. One of them is Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6, which reads, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was fulfilled in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Good old Peter sums it up in 1 Peter 2.24. For he wrote, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Well, this is talking about being forsaken, is it not? Isn't that what Jesus' cry was? And at three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Father, my God, which one? He doesn't say Father here. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the only textual commentary there is into this darkness. 
the fourth statement by Jesus on the cross. With a loud voice we read, Jesus quotes from Psalm 22, verse 1, and only verse 1. This is the only time in the New Testament's record that Jesus does not address God as Father. The only time. Why? Because as a substitute sacrifice for sin, the righteous heavenly Father had to judge him fully according to that sin. And what since then was Jesus forsaken by the Father? Well, the bottom line is that we don't really know the exact how of this. And you can get in big trouble if you go too far one way or the other. We can say that their separation was not one of nature, essence, or substance. There's theological terms for this, and you are welcome to go there. But we know this much, that much is true. Christ did not in any sense or degree cease to exist as God or as a member of the Trinity. In other words, he, was, he did not sense to be the Son. He did not cease to be the Son. Obviously, this is an incredible mystery that is simply beyond us. But remember that by the incarnation itself, there already had been a partial quote-unquote separation because Jesus had been separated from his divine glory. But even that is interesting to consider because on a certain mountain, a couple of disciples saw it. But Jesus, you see, had been separated from that glory, refusing to hold on to those divine privileges for his own sake. And that's what we read in Philippians 2, verse 6. But on the cross, what happened is Jesus received the Father's wrath for our sin became immeasurably more profound than even the humbling incarnation during the 33 years of Jesus' earthly life. One commentator really wraps up this darkness in a way that I think communicates it very well, but concisely. R. Kent Hughes writes, wave after wave of the world's sin was poured over Christ's sinless soul. Again and again during those three dark hours, his soul soul recoiled and convulsed as all the lies of civilization, the murders of a thousand killing fields, the ravenous destruction of the world's armies, and the noxious brew of hatreds and jealousies and pride were poured on his purity. 
Finally, he became a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Galatians 3.13 In the darkness, Jesus bore it all in silence. Not a word was recorded from his lips. Because he became sin for us, he had to undergo the cosmic trauma of separation from God. He was experiencing that which he saw so clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he came very close to dying there, sweating drops of blood. The physical agony was nothing in comparison to the sin that caused him such agony. My sin and yours. The black silence goes on and on for one hour and then two hours. Wave upon wave comes to his convulsing soul. And then at the end of the third hour, the silence is literally shattered with Jesus' loud cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is real. It's indescribable. It's agony. And then, remarkably, we see more mockery here in verses 35 and 36. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, Let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. There's a lot of theories about what's going on here. I think the best is just to understand it as more mockery, not really legitimate interest. It's possible their land had just been turned into darkness for three hours. That's got to be really scary and bring weight to the whole situation. But what they're saying was that Jesus crying out for Elijah to help him, according to 2 Kings 2, 1-12, we read and we know that Elijah did not die, but went up in a whirlwind to heaven. And we also see how these bystanders were really interested in seeing if they could prolong Jesus' misery. That seems to be their number one Priority, so they offer him a drink. What mercy. This was a way to continue their previous derisive mocking. We shouldn't have any problem understanding this part of this passage. You know why? Because it shouldn't surprise us that the previous three hours of scary darkness hadn't stifled them. Because our sin continues to harden the heart and it just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? Then in verse 37, Mark very simply says this, And Jesus uttered a loud cry 
and breathed his last. The fifth statement that he made on the cross is recorded by John here. I thirst, which probably parallels just what Mark said in verse 36. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to drink. Makes perfect sense. Why? Because after all that, you can't say anything. Anything liquid would allow for this loud cry. Jesus made it. He got out, I thirst. Someone ran. Then the sixth statement, which is also recorded in John, it is finished. Most important statement probably in the whole New Testament. Bible. We'll get to that. And then the seventh statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit which Luke records. The fact that here in verse 37 of Mark's account says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, reminds us of the hideous agony that he was in. Matthew actually adds a little bit here and says, Jesus yielded up his spirit, his life. Well, don't miss the point which is about Jesus' sovereignty over the exact time of his own death. His work of atonement was done. Sin was paid for. Jesus had regained the consciousness of the Father's loving presence and was entrusting his spirit to the Father's loving care. His last statement was what? From Luke? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you realize that any time you or I question whether God loves me. Any time any one of us thinks that we can add anything to what he has done, what are we saying about what we know just happened here? Yeah, it's horrible. We're saying we don't really believe this happened. We're saying, God, could you please show us something else that would prove it? How utterly ridiculous. How horrid are our hearts. And if that wasn't enough, Mark tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom in verse 38, the very next verse in his his recording. This is the great curtain or veil, sometimes called the veil, that separated the most holy place, also known as the Holy of Holies, from the holy place in the temple. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke all report this, but only Matthew and Mark record that it was torn in two from top to bottom. I'm married to a seamstress. I figured I better figure out what this was, why this was such a big deal, because every guy in here is thinking, oh, there's a curtain. Arnold Schwarzenegger walks up, sneaks into the temple, and just rips it in part. No, how ridiculous. God did this. This event was heavy with spiritual significance. This is another account that explains. In the early days of Israel's history, before the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians, this innermost room, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, contained the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat and cherubim between the wings of which God was understood to dwell in a symbolic sense. The presence of God above the ark in the most holy place testified to the presence of God among his people. And in another way, the veil or curtain that divided the most holy place from the holy place also pointed to the enormous gulf that existed between the holy God and the people because of their sin. The curtain was a way of saying in a very strong symbolic way, but also unmistakable way, this far you may come, but no farther. And we've pointed this out many times, but this particular piece of furniture is not exactly the shape or the size of the ark, but it's close. The cherubim run each end. Angels. We'll describe them in just a second. The top was overlaid with gold. And here's how we can describe this. There was only one day designated every year that a high priest could pass the curtain into the most holy place. And that day was on the Day of Atonement. When the high priest took the blood of an animal killed moments before in the courtyard, carried it past the curtain, and then sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat of the ark. The mercy seat was the ark's cover or its lid. The figures of two angels faced each other on the lid and their wings stretched backwards and upwards, which made a space in which God symbolically dwelled. The ark contained the two tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments below the space where the God was thought to dwell. Everybody have that picture? The ark was a picture of judgment for the righteous, holy God of the universe looked down on the law inside the ark 
and knew that it had been broken and that he had to punish the people for their sin. This is a dramatic illustration. And it stood on the Temple Mount day after day throughout the year as a constant reminder of God's judgment. When blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement, however, coming between God and the law that had been broken, this act indicated that an atonement for sin had been made, illustrating grace. An innocent victim, the animal, had died in the people's place, And rather than pouring out his wrath, God was now able to show grace and mercy to the people. This pointed forward to the true and final atonement that Jesus Christ would make on the cross. Pointed forth to his death, as did all the other sacrifices in the Old Testament as well. And here we see the significance of the tearing of the curtain. When Jesus died, everything the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to, everything was fulfilled. There was no need for any more sacrifices. And the way to God was open for all who would put their trust in Jesus Christ. God showed this in a rather dramatic fashion, would not you agree? By tearing the curtain at two in in two pieces at three o'clock in the afternoon, which was the time of the beginning of the evening sacrifice. Friday evening just happened to be Sabbath. The priest would have been in the temple, engaged in their duties when the curtain was torn. They would have seen it, no doubt standing aghast before the now exposed innermost recess of the temple where the ark was, and they would have known that the age in which they had served was over. And a new age of God's dealing with his people had begun. That doesn't mean they did something about it. It just means that they had to know. This may explain what we read later, very interestingly, in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Listen. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. How could they not? Somebody had to have an open, tender heart in that place. By the way, the curtain was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and at least four inches thick. Not really easy to tear. Holy God. God's tearing of this curtain teaches us at least three really important things. 
The old system of offering sacrifices year by year is over. The new age embraces both Gentile and Jew within God's church. Secondly, Jesus' offering of himself that just happened. I mean, this was closed together. Was the perfect and final sacrifice, so nothing more needs to be done or can be done to reconcile sinful man and women to God. In other words, Jesus' sacrifice was a real sacrifice for sin, not a symbol that pointed forward to something else as the Old Testament system did. To suggest then that anything more is necessary for salvation is to deny the doctrine of Christ alone. You can't make yourself acceptable to God. Nobody can. To add anything to Christ's work is to preach what Paul calls another gospel, which he says is an anathema. It's condemned. Third, because of Christ's work, it is now possible for those who believe in him to approach God directly on the basis of what Christ has done in him, through him. Now that isn't the only weird thing that happened. In Matthew 27, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The timing of this earthquake is what was miraculous to the eye at the exact time Jesus died. God has very creative ways of making statements, doesn't he? And if this is the excuse for the ridiculous zombie phenomena we have going on in our culture right now, it's desecrating. This is not the story. Can we say, wanting to make a pun that hits, this shook things up. There was witnesses. There were resurrected bodies in Jerusalem, people that other people knew testifying to the power of Almighty God and the sufficiency and acceptance of an atoning sacrifice. It's hard to even picture this. Well, there was something else that we can call a miracle because every one of us that have come to Christ 
has experienced a new life miracle. What is it? The centurion confesses Jesus as God in verse 39. This is one of my most favorite parts. It's all favorite. But Mark puts it here, I think, for a very important reason. Here we see a man, and by the way, in Matthew's parallel account, we find out that this includes those who were with him. He's the spokesman. There were the other guys with him who had come face to face with Jesus Christ. He was the officer. He's a centurion. He's over 100 men. And so probably he was the man whose job it was to crucify Christ. And he's right there. In front of Christ. He hadn't asked to be there and witness all of this. It was his job. He'd seen most of what had happened to Jesus throughout the day. He'd probably been part of the mocking. Hurling insults with everyone else who did. But obviously something changed. These men knew this was no ordinary execution. He saw Jesus being tried and killed for no offense at all. He saw the hatred and abuse towards Christ that just kept growing and growing. He saw the innocence of Jesus shine through all these circumstances and illuminate, really, his purposeful and willing death. Willing death. What did he hear? Into your hands I commit my spirit. He heard it all. Starting off with, Father, forgive them for what they do. This was not normal. He heard even when Jesus extended love and care from the cross to the robber and to his mother. He heard it all. He heard Jesus' gracious prayer for forgiveness for the very people crucifying him and enjoying it. He heard Jesus' response to the robber who'd recognized the same godlike character and love in Christ even when he hung there in agony. This Roman officer was in that three-hour darkness with Jesus saw the agony, felt it. Can you imagine how many people around here would go stark raving crazy if in just a few minutes it all of a sudden became dark and stayed that way for three hours? He felt the earthquake immediately after Jesus cried out, it's finished, and then, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Felt it. He knew this was not just a man, and so did those others with him. So as he stood facing Jesus and saw the way that Jesus breathed his last, he and the others were filled with awe, that's what it says in 
that's an understatement, filled with awe and said, truly this man was the son of God. This was the first clear verbal confession of Jesus' deity. Yes, Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ or Messiah, but that confession wasn't singularly declaring Jesus is God. They were playing with the idea, maybe he knew it, but this guy is the one who said it. God had grabbed these hearts and made them alive spiritually. What a picture of what is required when you come face to face with Jesus. Now, let me reread the first verse in Mark, written to the, mainly the Roman church. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, actually it starts with the beginning, sorry. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. We don't see that again until right here. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, written to a church in Rome. And the first person to confess that Jesus was God was a Roman, a Roman soldier. And maybe that's why we read and know from some history in Acts 2, that book, that there were many in the Praetorian Guard who ended up coming to Christ. We know Paul, when he was in prison there, made a huge impact. God works in incredibly powerful ways. He was a Roman soldier. How humbling. How wonderful. Instead of standing today, let's just bow our heads. I'm going to read a couple of verses from Hebrews for our benediction. Lord, as we come to these verses verses to close today and print upon our hearts your gospel and the gospel records of what happened in those six hours of Jesus on the cross that are the reason that you accept his payment for our sin and clothe us in his righteousness. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. You're dismissed.